This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. I'm Erica Arbuckle, and today we'll be reading from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. If you're using your pew Bible, that's page 810. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us again. Uh, Father, now, um, man, would you give us capacity? Uh, maybe, maybe no one's feeling anything, but I wonder if talking about loss and then talking about racial tensions, those are fairly significant. So um, we don't need to rush past that. We don't need to, like, get on to something else. But would you actually let this word connect to those longings? We don't want to get past that, actually. We want to sit where it's appropriate in sadness and tension and trust you in those spaces. But... Um, got to ask that you would help. And would you make it cognitively knowable to us, but would you make it transformative to us this morning? We are in desperate need of hope and desperate need to be transformed and changed. And Jesus, what you say in this passage actually orients our hearts around your word. And so even now we've heard it read and we turn now to try to explain it. Uh, I pray that you would speak loudly. Scripture says things like um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So would you stir faith now in this room? And again, add it to what we're already feeling. And if that's anger and frustration, would you add your word in a space that orients that? If that's sadness and loss and hurt, would you add your word in a space that orients that? If it's numbness and apathy, would you bring your word into that space to actually affect our hearts? And so uh, help me communicate, and I'm so thankful, Holy Spirit. You promise to be with us when your word is read. You promise to be with us when we gather, and so I'm thankful that what our people need this morning isn't just dependent on me. You are actively at work already, so, so would you keep doing your work because Christ was buried, he was raised, he's coming back? Would you keep doing your work because the Father loves us and has shown that? Would you keep doing your work because by grace you fill us? Holy Spirit in ways that we can actually hear and comprehend and have our hearts change and transform. So that's, that's a lot. This is not just a, like a, a sermon to kind of transition. This is us asking for you to speak to us. So, so God, amen. Amen. It's been a long week. Hey, let me, um, let me just kind of orient us just a little bit. Um, maybe you're new with us. So we were studying through the book of Matthew 
we've come to this space called the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually a teaching of Jesus about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. You can kind of summarize it that way. What does it mean the kingdom has come, and what does it mean in the way that we live and what we long for, what we do, how we think about the future? And so we're in this fairly early stage. Jesus has been teaching already about what the kingdom of God does in someone's heart, of who the kingdom of God is for. He talks about a gospel identity of salt and light. And now, as he goes on to teach, he's going to just say, hey, what I'm saying is not a brand new thing. This is in fulfillment of what God has always been saying. And so we stop here for a couple of weeks. We actually spent two weeks already in this passage before Easter. And we talked about the resurrection in a focused way. And man, I long to be the kind of people that talk about the resurrection every Sunday, every Tuesday, every Thursday, every Saturday morning. Like, I want us to be a resurrection people. But, but we took a break to kind of stop from Matthew. We talked resurrection specifically from 1 Corinthians. And then we talked about a response to the resurrection through the lens of Thomas, this one who doubted and needed God to pursue his heart. So that's where we were last week. And now we're, now we're jumping back in. So we talked about the fact that the Old Testament was like a tutor or was an example or it was a trainer to get us to a place where we would see our real need for Jesus. And so we actually preached a passage in Galatians a few weeks ago. And then from there, we came back into the text and we said, this passage is, is naming for us like an authority issue that Jesus is saying, hey, I stand in God's space with authority to teach you and instruct you. And so we said we have an authority problem with the scriptures and we also have an interpretation problem. Sometimes we don't know what to do with it because we don't want to do something with it because we want to be in the space of our own God, our own authority. And sometimes we just simply don't know what to do. We read hard passages. And actually, a lot of the New Testament is aimed at helping us understand the Old Testament. So, so that's where I want to focus today is how do you read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament? And so it'll feel a little different. I'm actually going to stick pretty close to my notes. I think it'll still be helpful, but sometimes we'll make a distinction between teaching and preaching. This will probably feel more like teaching. I want to give you like five things to keep in mind as you read the scriptures, and then three questions to ask. That's how I want to walk through the text. And so if you want to take notes, that's where we'll go. But before I jump in there, let me just kind of orient our time a little bit. We are a people of the book. God is a revealing God who has spoken to us. This is profound. You and I just are kind of born into an age of literacy where you learned how to read early on. You probably had copies of the Bible on grandma's shelf. You see it in hotels. You can download it on your phone. It's kind of everywhere. So if we're not careful, we can be kind of numb to the ubiquitous nature of God's word, but it is us. And he speaks with authority, tells us what he is like. He tells us what we're like. He tells us what we most desperately need. He speaks into our world. And already in Matthew, we've seen the power of God's word. It starts with this genealogy to say to us, hey, this story is coming. That's a profound way for Matthew to start his book. He's summarizing through names and characters, which you would think of stories. He's summarizing God's faithful, covenant-keeping nature through the Old Testament. And then we see over and over again, Matthew says, hey, and this was fulfilled, and this was fulfilled, and this was fulfilled. Matthew's laboring for us to see that what Jesus is doing as he came as the Messiah is in line with what God's always been doing. And we see even Jesus being tempted by the evil one. And and what does he do? He quotes the scriptures to Satan to actually defeat the temptation, right? The Bible has already been on display throughout the book of Matthew. And now Jesus, it says in chapter 5, verse 2, he sits down, he opens up his mouth, and he begins to teach them. So now here is the word of God, John tells us, embodied in the flesh, speaking the words of God to his people. We are a people 
of the book. So it has felt worth it to me to stop and slow down and just go, all right, God, how do we actually engage this? Because I know a lot of you feel uncomfortable when you read the Bible. You studied it for a long time and you hit some passages that you just skip over. Some of you have never really engaged the scripture. You don't see its relevance. Some of you actually feel like it's not relevant. A day gone by. And so we have lots of questions and can slow down and say, how do we actually encounter God in this? Because Jesus says that he is actually what the scriptures are all the way about. So look with me in chapter 5, verse 17. It's on page 810 if you've closed your pew Bible. Jesus says this profound provocative thing. Versions of this are what get him killed later in the Gospel of Matthew. He says this, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm not changing the teaching. I'm telling you all of this teaching is actually rooted in me. I am the fulfillment. He doesn't just say, I'm here to tell you how they've been fulfilled. He says, I am the fulfillment. So this is him claiming to be God. It's him actually speaking into our world. This is an authoritative teaching that you have to orient your whole life around. And then we sit back in our seats and go, I don't like authority. I don't trust authority. And I feel kind of awkward as I engage in places where I don't understand what to do. And so so I was just laughing at myself of how resist avoid hard conversations when I don't know what to say. I won't go to certain places if I don't know how I'm supposed to behave and act. So even this press conference with the police chief, when it was over, there's going to be news cameras out there. Well, man, I went out the side back door because I don't want to say something stupid on camera. And so I don't know what to do. And so I'm a man of courage and faith and I'll stand in hard places. But when I don't know what to do, I tend to kind of slip out the side door, even like on the dance floor at a wedding. I don't know how to dance. I'm on the sideline. I don't like to do what I don't know how to do. So when it comes to the scriptures, maybe you feel that way. You're like, well, I'll read a verse a day on my phone or I'll get some kind of fortune cookie framed nugget of truth. But when it comes to studying the Old Testament, man, there's words I don't understand. There's names I don't understand. There's commands I don't know what to do with. And so I'd rather just not feel awkward because I know I shouldn't dismiss it, some of you say, but I don't really know what to do with it. But here's the deal. Because Jesus is saying here, all of this is about me. And Colossians 1 says the entire universe is about Jesus. It is actually the epicenter of reality. The gravitational pull of the universe centers on Jesus Christ. So for him to say all of these scriptures are pointing to me raises the stakes for us that we can't just skip through this. We can't just avoid whole parts of the Bible. We can't just stop and say, I mean, that's for another day. We have to stop and go, what do I do with this? How do I interpret this? Not if I should interpret it or should I engage it or apply it, but option if you're a person of faith not to deal with that. Because Jesus says it's all pointing to him. And even though it's awkward, even though we don't know what to do, to stop and say, if it's pointing to him, then I have to move towards the scriptures because I desperately want to know what is the realest thing in all of the universe. Jesus himself. And God's revealed himself to us through his word. And so, so we're, again, we're not asking if I should apply something. We're asking how do I apply it. And so here's what I thought. I mean, we're all in different places. Even as I'm describing tensions, I know some of you have trained your heart to sit in God's word and you love it. It's how you wake up in the morning. It's how you go to bed at night. But for most of us, there's some tension. So I thought, okay, what if we could imagine like you and I are just sitting at a coffee shop, not because it's casual and cool, but just because we had about 30 minutes at that coffee shop. And you asked me, hey, Chris, how do I read the Bible? Zero context, right? You just open up this question, how do I read the Bible? Where, where would I take you in 30 minutes? Or just kind of what's going on this morning. And so what I want to do is go through these five things to keep in mind. 
you can imagine your imaginary cup of coffee as we're sipping and just say, what are things I should keep in mind as I'm reading and what questions should I ask? Let me just give you one more metaphor as we jump in. Jesus is going to say that I've fulfilled the Old Testament, right? Which he's saying we have to change how we read the Old Testament than the ways the Jews read it before Christ came. He's saying something has shifted. So it's all about him, but things have actually changed in his coming. So that makes us wonder, well, what do we do, right? And let me just kind of summarize where we've been in this idea that Jesus reinterprets the Old Testament for us. We have any Karate Kid fans? Like, there's the new one, right, that came out a few years ago. It's still good, I guess. And I, I thought about, like, I, did, I was praying for you last night, and I thought the Cobra Kai stuff on Netflix, I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's dirty or if it's great or hilarious or terrible. I have no idea. But there's like a resurgence. There's always like a karate resurgence in our country. So Lucas, when he was in kindergarten, took karate for about a year. We bought a one-year package. I was so excited because my car hadn't been waxed in years, so I'm super excited to take him to karate lessons Still has never been waxed, man. Totally disappointed. But, but we spent a year learning the spike of the dragon and the breath of the turkey and all these different moves that he did as a, as a kindergartner, right? But the movie, if you remember from the 80s or 90s, whenever it was, whenever the golden era of cinema was, when we saw Mr. Miyagi and Daniel in that space, you remember there's this scene, probably for too long, he's learning karate, but he washes these cars, and he's real specific about how he wants it done, and and he wants him to sand the deck, and he's real specific about how he wants it done. He wants him to, to paint the fence, and he's really specific about how he wants it done. And there's this uh, moment, this visceral moment in the movie of this 1990s movie. I actually watched the clip. It was not amazing acting. But in this moment, he's just frustrated, right? And he says, oh, I've taught you so much. And he says, yeah, I've learned how to wash cars. I've learned how to sand forth. I've learned how to paint your, your fence. And then they go through that moment, the climax, the music starts. And, and Mr. Miyagi says, show me, paint the floor, or pick me Sand the, sand the floor, and he does this move, and show me, wax the car, and he does this move, and so now he's learning. I've learned these steps, and they are the way that I actually am going to do karate, and then Mr. Maggie just goes crazy and starts throwing all kinds of punches and kicks, and, and Daniel's just going, going bananas with all these different moves that he learned, and you realize, oh my gosh, that's how I should have learned karate with all these chores that my parents were teaching me the entire time. Okay, what's amazing about that movie is Daniel doesn't go to the karate tournament and bring his paintbrushes and his sandpaper, and his wax, does he? No, no, because what he learned in those spaces served its purpose to move him on to another place where he could actually use those things. In a really crude way, I think that's the, what we're supposed to do with the Old Testament, is not leave it behind. It's not training wheels that you then take off and now you can ride your bike for real. You bring those things into real life as Jesus has come, and you use them, but you use them differently. You ask, because I'm now doing karate, not just learning the moves of karate, how do I deploy that differently in my life, right? So you don't leave it behind. It's not a tutor that you graduate from and turn on to more mature things. You don't think about the Old Testament as the beginning ground, like the elementary school, and now you move on to grad school in the New Testament. It's all carried together in one large story, but, but the skills that you learn, the things that you learned, you carry in, but you change how you use them. I right? have that metaphor in your mind. We'll come back to it a little bit because I want to give you five perspectives. Remember that this is one story. The Bible is telling one story. You've got 40 authors. You've got several millennium. You've got a long time. But Jesus is saying, this is one story, and I came to fulfill it. That's what verse 17 says of chapter 5. It is one story. Jesus isn't doing something new in a way that's different. He's doing something new in a way that fulfills, not sets aside. That's what he says. Actually, he says, 
He says, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, which is the end of the ages, not even a small stroke of a pen is going to pass out of the law until all of it is accomplished. So God started something back in the Garden of Eden that he is still accomplishing, he's still working. There is just one story. So when you read, you ask, how does this fit into this one larger story? There's not a story of how I make myself right with God through obedience and then another story about how I receive grace and then another story about what it looks like to follow him in hard places. It's all one story. Right? We're all learning like this. It starts with perfect creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, what we see is our ancient enemy enters the scene, tempts God's creation, the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, tempts him to turn away from God, what we call the fall, and everything breaks. And so from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Old Testament, what you have is a playing out of the effects of the fall, of what it means for us to turn away from God and to struggle to get back to God, and him keeping a promise that he made in Genesis 3 to one day come and make all things new. So you see this fall played out through characters, through poetry, through, through prophets. You see the Old Testament laying out this pattern of the fall pointing to the redemption because there's a promise that God's going to come and make all things new. And the Old Testament closes with this ache and this longing. There's 400 years of silence in the story to build this kind of angst. And now we see Jesus coming on the scene in the Gospels in the New Testament, being the one who fulfills the Old Testament promise. There are all these quotes going backwards saying, hey, it's all one story. Let me show you how that fit to me and that fit to me and that fit to me and that fit to me. He shows us what that story is all about. And then what you see is the unraveling of the curse and the coming of the kingdom. And the New Testament letters are really God's people wrestling with, how do I live in light of the fact that God kept his promise? He solved my biggest problem of this rebellion and me turning away from him as Jesus took on himself my punishment for sin, the wrath of God that I deserved. He bore that, and he bore it in a way that defeated death and was raised from the dead himself to give me a resurrection hope. And he promises in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20 and 21, to come and make all things new again. So you have a garden and a garden as bookends. The first two chapters in the fall and redemption and restoration happening. So that, that is the story. And what Jesus says, is it is actually one story. And God's dealing with Israel, his people, throughout the Old Testament, preparing them to realize they can't relate to God through any of so all the laws, all the rules, all the teachings are all spring-loading the tension in their hearts to realize, man, we can't actually keep it. All the failures, all the patriarchs, all the, the rules that are broken, all the sacrifices, all the bloodshed, all the war, all the pain, all the darkness is all getting us to a spot where we realize, man, on our own, we can't save ourselves. We need God himself to come and rescue us. There is just one story. And so what you're doing when you read the Bible is asking, where am I in that story? Because if I'm reading about kind of a, a, an account that's before Christ came, I want to read that differently. I want to read it back through the lens that he's actually come. Right? I don't want to pretend he hasn't come yet. It's like watching a movie. and You've seen the movie before. You actually want to interpret different scenes based on the entire movie. So, so there's a, a movie in the it was 2000, I think, this movie called Memento that came out. Christopher Nolan is the director. It's a fascinating film with tons of flashbacks, and the guy has amnesia, the main character does. He's trying to solve the murder of his wife. And the movie is cut in certain ways to make you feel like the disjointed nature of losing your memory. So you'll get a half of a scene, and then he'll flashback like several weeks before, but you don't really know he's done that. Modge podge of scenes and images, and it kind of builds on itself, but you never really know what's going on until the very end. But once you've seen the whole movie, 
then you can go back and you watch all those pieces and go, oh yeah, I know where that's going. I remember that. I know how that connects. But in the fragmented way of the movie rolling out, your story in mind, you wonder, about how does this law fit? What does this command do? What do, I, what do I do with this issue with war or slavery or this place of sexuality? Well, how do I locate that in the larger story? So, so the first thing is just simply to say, hey, there is one story. Second thing is this. Remember, there's just one hero in that story. Jesus says he is the one who fulfills this, right? Right again there in chapter, seven, or chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is the one who fulfills it. And nothing's going to pass away until everything is accomplished by him. There is one hero from the very beginning to the very end. God is the hero of this story. And what that means is that this is a relational story, right? God is inviting us into a relationship with himself. It also means that the people that we read about are not the heroes that we should emulate because you get in a lot of trouble. Like, all right, so, so Abraham's a polygamist. Well, don't be like Abraham. So don't be like Father Abraham who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Don't be like that. Be like the God who's, you know, Abraham is kind of a mess. So all of the patriarchs in the stories, those aren't the heroes of the story. They're pointing us to the one true hero. We're asking, where is God in this? What does this teach me about who God is, right? The goal is actually to do karate. The goal is not to be amazing at waxing cars or painting fences or sanding decks. You don't want to get stuck in the directional grain on the deck with the wood. That's not where you want to spend your time. You want to ask, how does this get me to the one hero? So there's just one story, and there's one hero of the story. Number three, there's always only been one plan in that story, right? Jesus says, not an iota or a dot is going to pass away in verse 18 until everything is accomplished. Everything God said in the Old Testament is leading us up to the space where we would see Jesus and the final restoration of all things. In Luke 24, you see a scene where the resurrected Christ interacts with his disciples, and it says in verse 27 that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, right, the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's always just been one plan. It wasn't like there was an an old way of doing things and then that didn't work out so great, so now there's a a new way. It was all pointing to Jesus the entire time. Now, there's some confusion here. There's different tribes, but I think when you read the Scriptures and what Jesus is saying here seems really clear. Like This is one thing that God has been doing. It is one story with one here. Everything that we read is pointing to the cross or making sense of the cross. I failed to give you a graphic, but if you can imagine, like, this is the cross, this pulpit is the cross, so you're left to right. So this is, this is the way you would read, right? Am I, okay, good, thank you. Thanks for that. It's, like, wide like this, okay? So you have all the laws, all the prophets, all the history books, all the poetry, all the stuff. It's all pointing and leading to the cross. All of those laws and the sacrifices, all those cleanliness issues, all the prophets and their warnings, all the patriarchs and their, and their struggle— all of God keeping his promise to those patriarchs, it's all funneling into a space where we would see our need for Jesus. And then from the cross, the New Testament goes out to this direction. Isn't this amazing? We are high-tech here at Louis Baptist Church. We're doing all kinds of, I have a puppet show next week and some shadows. My dog is amazing that I'll do next week, but I'm just kidding. So, So we go from this direction, and now we have all the Gospels and the birth of the church in the book of Acts. And the letters in Revelation, what we see coming out of that is people making sense of the cross. So it actually funnels back towards the cross as well. You're reading it this direction, but it's actually flowing both ways to who Jesus is because he's the main character of the story. And what's always been on the table in the scriptures is our need for a Savior and God's lavished love, 
his mercy and his self-sacrifice to get us to a place where we could receive him. And, and the Old Testament is training God's people, hey, you can't keep the laws. Hey, you can't make yourself king. You can't be your own prophet. You can't be your own priest. You need something more. And Jesus comes on the scene as the truer and better prophet, priest, and king. And now his followers make sense of that in the rest of their life. So the New Testament letters are making sense in their life of what do I do with Jesus? Marriage and my money and my forgiveness and the issues with race. It's all over the New Testament, right? Because they're, they're wrestling with the issues of cleanliness and who's on the outside and who's on the inside and what does it mean to be God's covenant people and be a difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And Jesus says, hey, in me, there's now something brand new happening that is the fulfillment of what God's always been doing. And it is me keeping the promise of God to make one new man. So he fulfills all the moral laws. He makes a way for us to be clean. He shows us how to worship the Father as holy. He fulfills all of the types of the Old Testament, all the feasts, the Sabbath rest, the Passover, all of that is fulfilled in him. The scriptures say in 2 Corinthians that he is the yes and amen of all the promises of God. He is the true and better Adam, true and better Abraham, true and better Moses, true and better David, true and better prophet, priest, and king. He is the ultimate one. He is the temple where we meet with God right in John 2. He's talking about his own body and he says, hey, tear this temple down. And I'll rebuild it in three days. And they just freak out because the temple is where you meet with God. And Jesus is saying, hey, the temple was never about the temple. It was never about waxing cars and painting fences and sanding floors. It was always to get you to a place where you would see me and meet with me face to face in a relational way. God actually has come among me, dwelt among us like they would go to the dwelling of the temple to meet with God. I'm the truer and better temple, he says. He's the foreshadowing of the sacrifice of all the things in the Old Testament, all the blood, all the sin coverings, all the things in the atonement. He's the one who all of that was pointing to. And it's in his flesh and broken body that God is making one new man so we no longer need outer courts and inner courts. We no longer need separations and distinctions. We no longer need things like clothes and dietary laws to separate us from other people. God's made one new man, Ephesians 2 tells us, in his own flesh. So it shows us our need. You see people crying out in need, and it's all pointing to Christ. And story after story of the darkness of the world is all pointing to our need for redemption in Jesus. So there's just one story. There's one hero of the story, and there's one plot line of the story. Number four, the story fits together in such a way that parts of it interpret other parts of it. So now we take a sip of our latte and we talk for a second. What I'm saying is that the story, the continuity of it is such that there are parts of it that are really clear that help interpret parts that aren't that clear. So, so here's one of them. The character of God helps interpret for us what is troubling about the New Testament and the Old Testament. Places where we're like, I'm not sure what that means. We fill in the gap of our understanding with the character and nature of God, which is why we say, hey, it's all centered on Jesus because in Jesus that we see that God demonstrates his love up and go, hey, I wonder with this scene of war or slavery or injustice, has God a God who's unjust? Has God a God who's a hate monger? Has God a God who, who actually harms people? And we go to the, the cross first, what we know to be true of the love of God on display for us. And we let the cross of Jesus help us understand the character of God to interpret the rest of the scriptures. So, so we start at the cross because God's character helps us interpret things that we are troubled with. Specific commands and story Bible reading plan, which, by the way, if you're going, hey, maybe I want to read the Bible. I'm not sure how to get started. On the outside of the sanctuary, there's a, a, a document back there that is us, a New Testament reading plan. We're in 1 Corinthians now. You could jump in right now where we are. 
you'll start in about chapter 7 or chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. If your personality is such that you need all, everything lined up and all your pencils are straight and you want to start at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, go ahead. But, but where you can jump in right where we are this week. But in this week, we read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, which has this really fascinating passage where Paul's speaking to the church and he says, you're celebrating grace wrongly. You're actually calling it grace when you have a man sleeping with his stepmom. That's crazy. You shouldn't do that. You should actually call that guy to repentance. And if he won't repent, Satan, the text says. All right. If you read that, you should like scratch your head and go, that seems odd or that seems harsh or that doesn't seem very gracious and loving. And so you go, what do I do with a church discipline passage? Well, passages interpret other passages. So you go back to the Old Testament where we see a pattern of people who are rebellious and disobedient. And finally, he'll say, hey, I can't leave you in the land and you continue to rebel and disobey and think that everything's fine. So I'm going to send prophets. I'm going to send people to rebuke you, to call you to repentance. And if you still won't repent, I'm going to send a plague. I'm going to send warring nations. And if you still won't repent, then I'm actually going to remove you from the land in exile. I'm going to take you out of the promised land. So you're not confused that you're fine with me, though you're running away from me. So church discipline is partly interpreted by the exile of the Old Testament. And the idea that God is so committed to us, he'll go to extreme lengths to win our hearts, including removing us from situations where we're tempted to think we're fine when we're not actually fine. So I read chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians and went, man, that's tough. And there'll be days where we have to do that as a church, where people are, are so hell-bent on their own um, desires and preferences and addictions and longings that they thumb their nose at God and say, no, I'm not going to follow God, but they still claim to follow God. And we'll have to move towards them in courageous ways. And we'll find framework and examples and teaching about how to do that, even from things like the exile in the Old Testament. So now you have promises in the exile. God's still being faithful to himself, even though they're in exile, which helps us pray for brothers and sisters that have to be removed because of their hard-hearted rebellion. They won't stop any other way except to be told, hey, you can no longer pretend. We're not going to pretend with you anymore. If your heart is hard and you're saying, I won't follow after God, then we're going to let you do that and not keep pretending that everything is fine. And when that happens, we'll have to go back to the Old Testament to give examples of how we plead and pray and long for their return. Does that kind of make sense? There are passages that help interpret other passages and commands and stories that help us interpret the larger themes and the smaller ones, right? So we should ask what would the original audience have heard in this? We should pay attention to the paragraph and the chapter and the book and where it is in the drama, right? So in the Chronicles of Narnia, when you have, I don't know if it's the beaver or somebody says that it's, it's always winter and never Christmas. That's true, but it wasn't always true. Right? Aslan comes and changes always winter and never Christmas because Aslan came and changed everything, right? So you want to stop and go, hey, where am I? Am I in the middle of winter when I'm reading this? Is this the Old Testament narrative where God's people are rebelling and pushing away and they're, they're being trained and taught they need a Savior at their own resistance? Is that where I am in the story? Okay, how does that change how I think about what God's calling me to because of where they are in the story? I pay attention to where you are in the larger drama. Pay attention to the paragraph and the chapter in the book and, and what God has been saying. And pay attention to how Jesus changed that moment. We don't want to live in this movie Memento where we're just flipping back and forth with all these different scenes. We want to see Jesus make sense of the larger story. And he helps interpret what is unclear by showing us what is clear. So, so even this issue with, with race, 
But there, there are lots of things that are really confusing, and you can be a Christian and have different responses to lots of issues. But if we just start way out wide and say, I don't know what to do, this is so complicated, you can feel stuck and overwhelmed. But the scriptures let you do is start with what is actually clear. And you get down to a space where you start to make some decisions and begin to move with conviction, right? Start with this idea that God loves the oppressed and wants us to stand with him. Start with the idea that God's ordained government authorities to actually help us and bring about peace. There's a call to, to help the marginalized. Right? There's a call to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. There's a space where we should live in community with each other and actually listen. There's a call to actually forgive those who hurt you. Right? There's a call to listen to both sides before you make a decision. There's a promise that transformation is a process and that people can be wrong and still be loved, which is great news for you and I who are wronged so often, formed and changed that we can repent. There's warnings against ingrained racism and how it changed the psyche and framework of somebody like Peter, and it took a while for him to get that unraveled from his heart from Acts chapter 10. Right? We see that the gospel brings equality. Right? There's no longer Jew or Gentile or slave. Functions are gone away, but the issues of ranking have gone away. So we can still appreciate the differences of backgrounds and heritages and not make a rank from those. Those are really clear in Scripture. Treating people with dignity, right, whether you agree with them or not. Treating them like they're made in the image of God. An admonition to lament and cry out. Realizing that the battle is not with flesh and blood, but it's with principalities and powers and dark forces. A call to be humble. A call not to put our hope in political systems. A cry that we need the Holy Spirit to actually transform and change us. And a hope for restoration of all things. All right, so we started way wide. Now we see all these clear things that get us to a space that may not tell you like a fortune cookie or a magic eight ball what you should do, but it tells you a lot of what you should do. There's a ton of, what I just read, there's a ton of commands. There's a ton of framework that's really, really clear that you get to apply wherever you are in whatever situation that you're in. Right? And racism in the scriptures helps us engage with the injustice in our country and have hope. And put ourselves in the space where we need help and hope and forgiveness, right? There's a lot that's clear that we can come into a space where we can actually wrestle with. So there's one story. There's one hero to the story. There's one plot line of the story. And the story helps interpret the rest of the story. Again, most of the New Testament is working this out. So you have classes like Acts 15 and Acts 10 and Ephesians 2 where the question is, what do we do with this Old Testament text? And the New Testament actually helps us interpret issues with temples and sacrifices and food and cleanliness and awe and what it means to be separated from the Gentiles, the New Testament changes that for us or it interprets that for us. It helps us know what it means that Jesus has actually fulfilled that, right? We get New Testament commands that are repeating Old Testament commands. There's a whole lot that's clear. So my dancing illustration is not so helpful, right? Because it's not just like this free-for-all. There's tons of things that are really, really clear in the Scripture. And start with what is clear and then move towards what is not clear. All right, number five, remember, 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 this is a story of hope. The biblical story over millennium is a story of hope. And it's a story that's so robust that means your story can have hope. Right? It's like knowing the end of a movie, right? So whether it's Lord of the Rings or the movie Darkest Hour or any romance, means you can change how you actually Watch it. You know there's hope in this thing so we can grieve and long with whatever takes place this week as people that have a resurrection hope. That doesn't make us passive. That doesn't make us weak. It doesn't make us lash out irrationally. It makes hope. 
So, so in that space, there's one story. There's one hero of the story. There's one plan in that story. The story all fits together in a way that it interprets itself, and it is a hopeful story. I would want you to keep those things in mind as you read God's Word. And then can I give you just three questions real quick as you read? Do you write these down? As you read, understanding this timeline, again, it's one cup of coffee, right? We blew through this super fast. We've got lots of time as a community to wrestle with God's Word, but, but here's some questions to ask as you read God's Word. Wherever you are in the narrative, ask, what does this tell me about God? He's the hero. He's the main character. So I'm asking, what does this text tell me about God, about His holiness, about His justice, about His compassion, about His gracious movement towards people that rebel against Him? about his patience, but also about the wrath of God. What does this teach me about God? Question number two, what does it say about me? What does this text reveal about me? I want to start with God, then I want to go to what does it say about me? My brokenness, my ability to be forgiven, my, my value as one made in God's image, as one who actually is in process and God's faithfully committed to me, even though I feel really disjointed. But what does it say about me? I cry out to God, what does this passage say about me. And then number three, how does it point me to my need for Jesus? If in my little weird hand thing, it's all centered around Jesus, he's the center point. Jesus says, hey, I'm telling you how I'm the fulfillment of all of this. That's the whole point of Matthew 5, 17. It's all about him. So I should ask as I'm reading, how does this point me to my need for Jesus? Where does he cleanse me? Where does he provide holiness for me? Where does he encourage me? Where does he meet me? How does he treat me in my brokenness? How does he promise to actually rescue and save me? And I think those three questions will get you really far in your Bible reading. And if you can keep those five kind of big picture ideas in mind, as you encounter difficult things, it won't feel quite so overwhelming, right? It won't answer every single question. It's just one cup of coffee that we've had. It hasn't answered every single question, but it gets you to, I don't know, 70%, 80%, more than you have if you just sit back and don't read it at all to help you actually engage with God. And then when you get stuck, and you're going, all right, man, hey, I need another cup of coffee. That, that's not going to work. Remember that we get this gift of living in community. God's actually put us in community where you can ask. You can go to brothers and sisters. Don't, don't sell your business or make some life-changing decision based on a half of a verse you read one day in the middle of the night. Like, bring community into this to go, hey, what might God be saying? Can they validate that for you? Can they affirm that? Can they walk with you? Can we pray together about how you think you should be applying the things that feel less Right? We get the beauty of living in 3, 1 to 4, 6. And verse 16 of that passage, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be the kind of people that actually wrestle with and sit in and dwell in and soak up and taste the word of God. Let it be something that's dwelling in you richly. Right? It's the epicenter of the universe. It's pointing you to who God is in himself. So, so sit in that word. And it says that we should teach and admonish one another right? in this communal space in all wisdom. And we should sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. There's a call to be in the Word in community. And friends, it is a gift that God, throughout this entire story, has been building a people and calling people to Himself. He didn't just pluck you in this isolation, which is what's been so hard about COVID, where you felt alone and by yourself for so long. You're actually not meant to live that way. You're meant to live in community. And so we get to wrestle together with the truths of God's word. All right, so this karate kid thing, it's kind of hilarious. I don't know, but um, so could we do this? Like, could we say like, if it's paint the floor or paint the fence and sand the floor and wax the car, could we do like, show me, where's Jesus in this? Show me, what does it teach me about God? 
show me, what does it teach me about me? And that's all he does, right? He just goes like, paint the face, send the floor. What does it say about God? What does it say about me? What does it say about who Jesus is for me? Can I sit in the the text and ask those simple, basic things? Because the whole story is answering that question. Me and how did he come to meet that need in Christ? So, So show me, point to Jesus. Show me reveals my brokenness. Show me exalts the holiness of God. If you haven't seen that movie, that makes no sense at all. If you've seen that movie, thanks for hanging with me. And that's all in us. The end of this passage in Colossians 3 says that we should move towards thankfulness in our hearts. Because I think those three questions actually frame communion for us, right? The word for communion of Eucharist is actually a word for thanksgiving. And when I ask, what does this say about God? And what does this say about me? And how does it point me to my need for Jesus? And I see Jesus' fulfillment of what I needed on the cross with his broken body and shed blood. It fills my heart with thankfulness. And so it's appropriate that we take communion because that is the center image of the story. He didn't stay dead. It wasn't just his broken body and just his shed blood, but in his death, he purchased our salvation and he proved that he could do it through his resurrection. And so I want to ask you to go ahead and take the elements of communion in your hand. If you missed it, there's some in the back there, also some up front here. I want you to grab that little cup and remember these three questions and ask it not of that cup, but ask what this cup is pointing to. What does this cup tell you about God's love for you? About the kind of God that he is that he sacrificed himself in your place? What does this cup and this bread tell you about yourself, about your need and your brokenness and your value that he actually would come and rescue you? And what does it tell you about your need for Jesus? It's actually have hope. You can be thankful. You can actually be transformed and changed. Let me pray for us. We'll take communion together and then we'll sing. Communion is for those who trust Jesus. If that's not where you are, there's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that might help you give language to how you ask, hey, God, would you speak to me? Are you actually real? But for all who are trusting Christ, would you engage with us in communion as we retell this story in small ways to reenact what is the center of what God's been doing? So God, come now and help us. We've said a lot of words. So would you, what you've done for us and what it says about us and what your sacrifice has been like would ring in our ears with the good news of the gospel. Thanks that the Bible is not the center. It's pointing to what's the center. The scriptures aren't the goal. They get us to the goal. And the goal is you, this beautiful relational God who gave himself for us on our behalf so we could be rescued and redeemed. Would you fill the room now with joy and thankfulness as we celebrate that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.